Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is The Dogs Program. The Australian Council of the Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. And uh, it is also part of our remit to make sure that there is separation of religion and the state because we cannot have a strong public education system in this country or any country unless those who wish to separate our children upon ideological or any other grounds for that matter, are held in check legally. Now, we have a press release, 685, which really illustrates what is currently happening in the most powerful part of the world to separation of religion and the state. It's under threat things are perhaps a little bit worse than they might seem. And this is our press release 685 at www.adogs.info. Separation of religion and the state under threat, Betty DeVos and God's plan for schools. Well, who's Betty DeVos? She is president-elect Trump's choice for the education secretary in his particular cabinet. Now, the American Congress and the American Supreme Court have historically led the world on the Enlightenment principle of freedom of religion and separation of church and state. The earliest European settlers to the New World were refugees. Refugees they were from the extraordinary bloodletting of the religious wars of the old world. They believed that they were protected from religious extremists, blasphemy laws, the divine right of kings and priests and taxpayer funding of religion by the First Amendment of their American constitution and a strong Supreme Court. At Federation in 1901, Australia followed America with Section 116 of their Constitution, which is based on the American First Amendment. Now, these basic rights, which have for so long protected us and the Americans from the kind of religious bloodletting and civil strife which we're currently witnessing in the Middle East, are now under threat. The election of Donald Trump could well open the Pandora's box of religious strife again, which we thought our ancestors had closed. 
Australia lost its protection when the High Court read Section 116 down and out of the Australian Constitution in the Dogs case in 1981. And now we are separating our children into myriads of religious schools. Fortunately, we still have almost two-thirds of our children in public schools where they learn to live together. But a large section of our population are separated out on the basis of religious belief. And given more money now, more taxpayer money in some cases than goes into our public schools. But now the American position is also under threat from the new Christian conservative right, who, by the way, should know better. Their representatives is in, in key positions of power. They call themselves Christians, but they leave aside the teachings of Christ on the proper relationship between the followers of Christ and those in power, which you will find in Matthew. Uh, chapter 22, verse 21. They dream, these so-called Christians in America, of a republic which is subject to biblical laws, whatever they decide these to be. A very medieval motion, I might add. And the president-elect's choice of the Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, is their champion. Consider the following report in the New York Times by Catherine Stewart on December the 13th, 2016, which you can also find in the media section of our website. At the rightmost edge of the Christian conservative movement, there are those who dream of turning the United States into a Christian republic subject to biblical laws, she writes. In the unlikely figure of Donald J. Trump, they hope, to have found their greatest champion yet. He wasn't our preferred candidate, the Christian nationalist David Barton said in June, but he could be God's candidate. Unfortunately, some Christians like to play God. Very dangerous. Consider the President-elect's first move on public education. Jerry Falwell, Jr., who was the president of Liberty University, which is the largest Christian university in the nation, says that he was Mr. Trump's first pick for Secretary of Education. And this Liberty University, where he is the president, teaches creationism alongside evolution. But when Mr. Falwell declined, President-elect Trump offered the cabinet position to Betsy DeVos who we've already talked about in previous weeks on this program. In most news coverage, Ms DeVos is depicted as a member of the Republican donor class and a leading advocate of school voucher programs. That's true enough. And the dogs have, refer have, have referred to this in previous weeks. But it doesn't begin to describe the broader conservative agenda that she's been associated with. Betsy DeVos stands at the intersection of two family fortunes which helped to build the Christian right. In 1983, her father, Edgar Prince, who made his money in the auto parts business, contributed to the creation of the Family Research Council, which the Southern Poverty Law Centre identifies as extremist because of its anti-LGBT language. Her father-in-law... Richard DeVos, Sr., 
is the co-founder of Amway, a company built on multi-level marketing or what critics call pyramid selling. And it has been funding groups and causes on the economic and religious right since the 1970s. Now, Mr Voss is a chip off the old block. At a 2001 gathering of conservative Christian philanthropists, she singled out education reform as a way to advance God's kingdom. In an interview, she and her husband, Richard DeVos Jr., said that school choice would lead to greater kingdom again. Sounds rather like the 19th century bishops of the Catholic Church, doesn't it? So I don't think that you could call this Christian right in America Protestant anymore. And so the family tradition continues funding the religious right through a network of family foundations, among others the couple's own, as well as the Edgar and Elsa Prince Foundation on whose board Mr Voss has served along with her brother Eric Prince, founder of the military contractor Blackwater. Now according to Conservative Transparency, a liberal watchdog that tracks donor funding through tax filings, these organisations have funded conservative groups including the Alliance Defending Freedom, the legal juggernaut of the religious right, the Colorado-based Christian ministry Focus on the Family and the Mackinac Centre for Public, Public Policy. Now, like other advocates of school voucher programs, Ms DeVos presents her plans as a way to improve public education and give families more choice. But the Family Foundation's money supports a far more expansive effort. The evangelical pastor and broadcaster D. James Kennedy, whose Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church is a beneficiary of DeVos Largesse, said in a 1986 sermon that children in public education were being brainwashed in godless secularism. This, uh, listeners, is almost exactly the same talk of the Catholic bishops in Australia in the 19th century. Our public schools in those days were called godless schools. More recently, in 2005, he told followers to exercise godly dominion over every aspect and institution of human society, including the government. Jerry Falwell Sr. outlined the goal in his 1979 book, America Can Be Saved. He said he hoped to see the day when there wouldn't be any public schools because the churches will have taken them over and Christians will be running them. So I can't see too much difference between these people and the Roman Catholic Church and the way it behaved in the the Middle Ages. They see the church as being involved in power. Well, they actually should go back to the Gospels and look at what Christ had to say about being involved with state powers. Now, vouchers are part of the program that these people are pushing. And of course, as we know here in Australia, they are very much part of the Roman Catholic Church's program. 
as well as now the so-called independent schools. According to an educational scholar, they originally came into fashion among Southern Conservatives seeking to support segregation in schools, but activists soon grasped that vouchers could be useful in a general assault on public education. As Joseph Bust, president of the Heartland Institute, which received support from a DeVos-funded donor group, exclaimed, complete privatisation of schooling might be desirable, but this objective is politically impossible for the time being. Vouchers are the type of reform that is possible now. The divorces well understand that, stripped of specious language about reform and choice, such a plan for public education would be deeply unpopular. In 2002, Mr DeVos Jr. advised a Heritage Foundation audience that we need to be cautious about talking too much about these activities. So the public school system in America, which is still uh, still in, in fairly good shape, really, uh, they have less children in, pub, in private schools there than we do in Australia. It actually faces the most immediate threat, but it's not the only institution at risk from the Christian right. It's already won a number of key roles in the Trump administration. Because, as we've told you earlier, the head of the presidential transition, Vice President-elect Mike Pence, is an avid voucher proponent. And as Governor of Indiana, he has expanded a voucher program that now funnels $135 million a year into private schools, almost all of them religious. Well, in Australian terms, of course, this is peanuts because here we channel billions of dollars into private religious schools. But this is the camel in the tent in America. As well as that, Mr Trump's nominee for Attorney General, and this is even more worrying, Jeff Sessions, favours religious tests for new immigrants and objects to chief justices with secular mindsets. So we have an Attorney General in the United States that will be um, very influential in any new appointments to the Supreme Court, which to date has held America to the First Amendment and its secular traditions. The nominee for Secretary of Health and Human Services, Tom Price, is a member of a physician's organisation which is also aligned with conservative Christian positions on abortion, contraception and other issues. Mr Trump's senior strategist, Stephen K. Bannon, may not appear to be a religious warrior, but he shares the vision of a threatened Christendom. I believe the world, he says, and particularly the Judeo-Christian West, is in crisis. This is a crisis of both our church, a crisis of our faith, a crisis of the West and a crisis of capitalism. Well, perhaps it is in crisis because they have forgotten what Christ was about, particularly when it comes to um, issues of power and religion. What is distinctive about the Christian right's response to the perceived crisis, and haven't we had a lot of perceived crises here in this country recently in education, is the apocalyptic conviction that extreme measures are needed. So there's nothing conservative about the agenda. 
It's actually radical. Gutting public education will be just the beginning of what Mr Trump and his cabinet are really about. Uh, And we need to take cognizance of this because uh, people like Corey Bernardi and others have just been over in America and they're only too happy to come back to Australia and tell us what the uh, conservative right here in Australia will be expecting of our politicians and we have seen how Mr Terminal not only says, I'll jump if you tell me to, but just let me know how high. So we live in very interesting times and we need to inform ourselves about what is likely to happen before it happens so that we can be ready to fight it. The people in America have got a good idea and they are informing themselves and this is the information that we have gained from them and we have no doubt that uh, Mr Trump won't have it all his own way certainly if the New York Times has got anything to do with it. But we will watch with interest and I think that we need to not only watch with interest here in Australia but do something about it. So we'll have a bit of music and then Robert is here to talk about the news and views and researches that he has been doing in the last week. Thank you. 
Oh, you've got to love a trumpet overture, don't you? That was the Atlanta overture um, played, played by Mr Farley on the trumpet, I think it was. Anyway, you're listening to the Dogs Program here on 3CR, 855 on the AM dial. It's Robert here back in the studio, sick and tired of gallivanting all over the place. I've come back to my proper home, which is 3CR, 855 on the AM dial here in the cosy studios of of resistance against the, the great evils that seem to be... Evils are funny word. The great wrongs that are being perpetrated all around the world, uh, certainly in terms of education. Um, I've been doing some research. Uh, a friend of mine, um, Joel Windle, um, I don't know him all that well, although he knows, seems to know me more, better than I know him. So if you're listening, Joel, um, I'm going to get you on the show because you've written a really interesting book um, about school choice in Australian education. Um, I met you a little while ago. You were... Um, Listen to be playing music at a few festivals and you kept turning up and it was nice to have someone listen to us with a serious intent, but it um, seems as though you're more than just a good listener, you're a good writer as well. Um, the book you wrote was about school choice, but you've interestingly enough got yourself an article in The Guardian quite recently, which I think is actually worth sharing with our listeners. Because um, your perspective is, is actually just quite a sensible one. It's not the dog's perspective. But it's quite a sensible one because he's talking about the concepts that I often talk about of parental anxiety, you know, wanting to do the best for my child um, as opposed to the children. Uh, parental anxiety and PISA, PISA being the International Comparison Study of Education Systems from around the world, of which Australia are doing notably very poorly in at the moment. We're falling behind. And um, he comments that to lift academic standards in Australia, it's a very simple solution we need to stop segregating children. Mm-hmm. And he goes on to say, and this is from an article in The Guardian on 11th of December 2016, he said, the latest PISA results confirm a long-term decline in Australia's educational performance, along with a slight worsening of our already lower-than-average equity levels. Disparities in results between schools and between sectors have sharpened and disadvantaged schools are reporting significantly fewer resources than advantaged schools. Um, now, Joel, thank you very much for pointing that out. All of that is true, um, but I do note you talk about advantage and disadvantage in a sort of sector-blind way, but hopefully we'll get you on the um, show and we'll talk about that. But he actually makes the point, I think, for good reason. He says, we need to address these disparities front-on by articulating a positive project for de- democratic schooling that demands, at minimum, schools and a curriculum that are accessible to all students. You might be interested in this, Dale. He says, We've come closest to the ideal at primary level, with many socially integrated learning environments. Jean's often going on about the local primary school that she sends her grandson to and how wonderful it is. Because there you find collaborative learning and creativity encouraged in many, many primary schools around Australia. The ideal is furthest from reality at senior levels of secondary schooling, where competitive examination preparation yields radically uneven school results in socially segregated settings. This is one reason the transition from primary to secondary school is often experienced as a shock by both children and parents. But Australia needs socially and ethically integrated schools at all levels. He says the US experience of desegregating schools back in the 70s and 80s, Gene, showed that it dramatically decreased the achievement gap between black and white students 
In part, this was because the most disadvantaged students began attending schools with superior resources, including da, 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 more experienced teachers. Just as in the US, the most resourced schools in Australia are those that cater almost entirely for the most privileged student groups. That is to say, they are segregated schools. It is impossible to hold such schools up as models of quality education when their results are gained under conditions of exclusion. None of the so-called top schools in examination league tables are able to tolerate more than about 5% of students drawn from the most disadvantaged socioeconomic status group. Now, we've been saying this for years. It's nice that someone's just put their finger straight on it. None of the top schools can tolerate poor kids. The creation of a market in secondary schools an uneven distribution of resources between sectors, and now Joel's mentioning sectors, has led to intense parental anxiety, including heightened fears about schools with migrants, refugee and working class components. In Australia, as globally, these market policies have increased ethnic, social and academic segregation, deepening achievement gaps and moving away from a democratic vision of universal quality. Access to well-resourced sites is connected to access to the curriculum, which consistently rewards students from socially privileged backgrounds while failing those from disadvantaged homes. Despite abundant pedagogical innovation, the competitive senior school curriculum remains effective and appealing to only part of the student population. The curriculum is so attuned to the interests and the strategies and the needs of socially privileged families that academic selection has virtually the same effect as economic exclusion in producing segregation in Australia. I just want to say that again because I think that's a very powerful sentence. The curriculum in Australia is so skewed that academic selection is the same thing as economic exclusion. In short, academically selective and high-fee schools share socially segregated profiles that are uniquely well catered for by the existing subject offerings and teaching methods. It's all in sync. Everything's working just fine if you've got the money. The result of a, a curriculum that is unequally attuned to diverse student populations is that schools and families and even teachers seek out those privileged students who are most likely to be easy to teach and achieve high grades. At its most perverse, schools with curriculum offerings that appeal to weaker and working class students, such as vocational streams, have been known to drop these in order to become less appealing to such students and to therefore attract, inverted commas, academically minded clientele only. Middle class families with high achieving children thus have more educational options available to them than those without economic power or academically brilliant offspring. So, he's outlined the problem, I think, quite clearly, just at a really fundamental level, not Catholics or privates or independents or public schools, because there's a lot of public schools out there. In fact, there's one happens to be in the southern suburbs of Melbourne, which is doing exactly what Joel's talking about, excluding working-class people, to make sure that, as a state school, it achieves the right thing for its middle-class aspirational parents. So, Joel has a solution. He says, so, what needs to change? First, 
The normative model for learning and teaching, as well as curriculum and assessment development, must be socially integrated schools. Curriculum and assessment authorities are often a reflection of the most socially segregated educational settings, partly due to the concentration in exclusive schools of the most highly qualified and experienced staff, and partly due to the historical dominance of high-fee private schools, hand in glove with sandstone universities. Second, there must be direct efforts made to desegregate schools. A school that enrols no students from the bottom quarter of a socioeconomic distribution and just 3% from the bottom half is not a top school, but a candidate for desegregation. Australia has a great history of diversified and challenging school-based bottom-up curriculum reforms, particularly throughout the 70s and 80s. I'm sure Jean would in part agree. But these were not brought to fruition and were cut short by an increased focus on standardised testing and, I would add, on segregating based on economic, by, by, by state and federal government funding of promoting a private school system at the expense of the public one. Fortunately, there is still much to be learned by the system levels from amazing work going on in our schools right now. Primary schools, in particular, stand as examples of what is possible when learning is undertaken under a different set of conditions and with more progressive objectives. The positive attitudes parents have towards culturally and socially diverse local primary schools shows that there is no inherent desire in Australia for segregating schools. It's just a product of the way we have structured our school system. Now, I found that just a very interesting and, and all in all, quite powerful article. It, it's, it's, it's not an article about school systems and Catholics and privates and, and, and public and all that sort of stuff. He's talking about very fundamental ideas, which I do think come into play when it comes to what's going on in Australia. What do you think, Jane? I'm, I'm inclined to agree. I've thought all along over the years uh, that um, the insecure middle class and uh, their their concerns for their offspring have been a factor that has really never been fully analysed. I always felt when they first started uh, state aid back in the 1960s that this was the result of particularly Wyndham trying to bring in the comprehensive high school, which was desegregated, but the... uh, Parents, the middle class parents who had expected their children to go to the selective high schools, then left the public system and demanded that they should have state aid for a segregated system because that is actually what a private system is. Let's call it for what it is. They talk about religion, they talk about their conscience, and I'd like to talk about conscience in a moment. Uh, There were all of these very, very sensitive Christian consciences back in the 1960s. But what I saw were your aspirational middle-class parents who did not want their children to be, quote, infected by uh, children from less advantaged Backgrounds. Well, indeed. Well, our dear listeners are now being infected by what we're saying here on the radio at 3CR 855 on the AMDL because we're defending government schools in a very unapologetic, very unapologetic and very perhaps sometimes long-winded. But you know what? 
You've got to keep fighting because the fight needs to be fought. What we'll they be returning. didn't understand, Robert, was that uh, perhaps the best education that a privileged child can get is in fact to rub shoulders with children of all backgrounds and particularly of all um, refugee status because back in the 1960s we had refugees from the Second World War and they really did make a big difference to the education of the children of the returned soldiers and others. They are actually making a mistake. They don't understand what a really good education can be. Uh, As a teacher, I found teaching in the comprehensive high schools of the 1960s a great joy. I learnt a great deal from from the very large variety of children that I was exposed to culturally. And I found it so much uh, more energetic educationally in every way than the selective high schools and other schools that were segregated. I think that the parents who send their children to segregated schools are in fact doing their children a great disservice. Can't say I don't agree. We'll be back with the Dogs Program after these messages. Public Interest Before Corporate Interests Action Group. Why is it so difficult to find a home, to pay rent, pay mortgage? Why is it so difficult to afford childcare, get a decent education for the kids, have so much trouble gaining access to public hospitals and healthcare, finding a job, let alone a secure, well-paid one, to be able to pay for gas and power bills or even put food on the table? Remember when we could do all of this on one wage and an eight-hour day? We invented and built discovered and taught. We made ships, planes and cars. We were among the world first in social, health, scientific and arts initiatives. Alas, no more. The three big parties are funded by corporates and therefore dependent and cannot honestly represent public interest. We are looking for like-minded people who would be interested in making significant actions to inhibit corporate power by pressuring politicians, writing public petitions, initiating public forums to inform and also give people a voice, organising demonstrations, standing a political candidate, investigative journalism and corporate vulnerability analysis. Contact PIBCI, www.pibci.net, www.pibci.net. Email. Info at pibci.net, P-I-B-C-I.net. Phone 0439395489. P.O. Box 20 Parkville, Victoria 3052. Public Interest Before Corporate Interests. If you would like to help put public interest before corporate interest, contact Pibsi. Welcome back to the Dogs Program. We are here defending government schools. Well, today I'm going to talk about Tim going out for a pizza. Oh, sorry, I'm talking about Tim's and Pisa, which are the two international comparators of education systems from across the world. Everyone's obsessed with about assessing everything. If a thing's worth doing, you have to assess it. If you're going to educate kids, you've got to assess them. Well, they have all around the world. And um, in terms of international comparisons, Australia is actually falling behind, way behind. We used to be, in the, we used to be top. Then we were in the top, and then we were close to the top, and now we're in the ruck. We're in the middle. Falling behind. 
all this money, all this talk, all these state education ministers talking to the Commonwealth, screaming about money, got nothing, in, well, money's got something to do with it, but none of them addressing the basic and fundamental question, which is a, the education system in Australia is not a system, it's three systems. There is, and it's been segregated, it's of no benefit to the vast majority of the population, it's not fit for purpose, and it needs to be reformed. Not just reformed, there needs to be an education, a proper one, a revolution. Whereas Mr Windle will say, and I will say, no taxpayer money should go to any school that is exempt from the regulations of Australia. It's, a, it's an equity question. And there are some people now coming up out of the woodwork and saying exactly the same thing. Bernie Shepherd and Chris Bonner have said exactly the same thing. And they've got some figures to back themselves up. Because when it comes to equity, it's not about feeling good. When it comes to equity, it's equity. It's just not about having a nice feeling about charitably giving things to people. When you talk about equity, it's about what's actually of economic, financial, and social benefit to the entire country. You follow the money, see where it goes, and then you find that it is unequal. And they said in an article in the Guardian on Thursday, the fifteenth of December, that when the end of the school education year comes, there are rituals in Australia. You have the release of end of year school exam results once again. All the names of the top 100 schools are paraded around in various states and everyone marvels at those who seem to do so well. If you, have, if you ever pick up a paper about this time of year, you'll find all these people have got wonderful VCE results. You don't hear about the other side. No, not at all. Now, at risk of raining on, on, on this parade of, of, of self-congratulations of the top 100 schools, it's actually all very predictable. Two-thirds of the top 100 are still there when the schools are ranked by socioeconomic level of the parents. Rich kids get good education in Australia. Who'd have thunk it? Even the public-private school comparisons are actually largely spurious. Results coming out of schools enrolling similar students don't vary much between school sectors. And if all that amounts to rating on this week's parade of everyone saying how wonderful VCE or HSC is, then the recent release of the Trends of International Mathematics and Science Studies, that's Tim, Tim's, Program for the International Student Assessment, that's PISA, that's Tim going out for PISA. Uh, these results actually aren't just raining on the parade, they're drowning the parade of this self-congratulation. At the end of November, Australia woke up to discover we had fallen behind in educational science and mathematics behind Kazakhstan. Then a, later, a week later we were told that our science, maths and reading results were on long-term decline. But there's more. In fortuitous time, in the education ministers around Australia are gathering, in, gathering just at the moment, actually, for, an, for another series of COAG education meetings. You can't get the last time they met. After furious disagreement and blame shifting, they firmly resolved to meet again. In fairness, no one actually expects them to come up with a magic bullet solution to the plateauing and plunging, emerging in Australia's global test scores. In fact, it's best they don't hurry. Because one of the problems with such global testing is precisely because the results push countries towards quick-fix solutions. But we can certainly expect that the usual posturing by key players to continue, as it has in the past. It's variously about the needs to furiously reform schools, focus on math and science or whatever, spend more money, spend less money, make schools more accountable or more independent or both provide more support for needy without upsetting the greedy, and so on, and so on, and so on. Now, we're in good company. Australia is not the only country to experience post-PISA pains. 
And furtively looking at what high-achieving countries are doing, as Amanda Ripley recently reported in the New York Times, the smartest countries tend to be those that have acted to make teaching more prestigious and selective, directed more resources at their neediest children, enrolled most children in high-quality preschools, helped schools establish cultures of constant improvement and applied rigorous, consistent standards across all classrooms. Now, we're working on some of those things, but sidestepping others. And there's a variety of other solutions. Uh, Professor John Hattie talks about the need for a reboot in our education system. The Productivity Commission wants to gather together the evidence of what works and what is readily available. And the recent Grattan report revived the idea of masters of teaching. Now, in broad terms, the solution in many of the players fall into two categories. And I think this is important because where the dogs fall into one of these two. The first lot believe that the problem and solutions lie almost entirely within schools and school systems. These within-school reformers are often quite distant from schools and include governments, some academics, commentators and corporate donors. They variously propose, mandate, research and or fund a range of interventions. Their ideas fully range from the sensible to the stupid. The second lot believe that the key to improving schools lies in the way we provide and resource them. The point of the context at which schools operate, their establishment, obligation and operation, location and sector, funding and the SES profile of their students and parents. Now the dogs are with the second lot and so indeed are Chris Bonner and Bernie Shepherd. Not because the within school reform is wrong but simply because the best ideas won't take hold or succeed if we continue to ignore the problems which are external to the school. Education systems, Robert, have to have objectives. The first lot just have never wanted to talk about the long-term objective of what a school system should do for a democracy because deep down they don't care for democracy, I believe. They care for a different kind of civil society and I'm not sure that it's very civilised. Well, Chris Bonner and Bernie Shepard go on to, to try and demonstrate what you're saying in this way. There are many proposals to improve teachers and to parachute the best into the really struggling schools, but the remaining students, role models, leaders and achievers in those schools go out the back door to attend both public and private schools further up the socioeconomic ladder. Due to a combination of known factors, the task faced by those gun teachers, you know, Teach for Australia teachers, becomes much harder. The odds pile up against their success. We have shown what is happening to these schools across Australia and why they didn't seem to be delivering. Now, the Gonski panel ably demonstrated how our structure of schooling concentrates problems in some schools and advantage in others. And the schools which are gathering more of the advantage students aren't lifting the level of achievement. They're just cruising, actually. They're not actually improving at the top. Now, recent years have seen more focus on what's happening outside the school in the process of creating a better balance in search of solutions. The Grattan Institute illustrates how solutions need to address problems on both sides of the school fence. John Hattie talks about the need to focus on reading and maths and teacher quality, but he also sees the need to build confidence in the public school system and, like others, is very concerned about inequity. Now here is something different. Hattie also says schools need to demonstrate they are inviting places to come and learn. And they need to have multiple ways to be excellent in upper high school. 
He hints at a problem that usually escapes attention. For decades, schools have been locked into a marketplace competition which has not created quality, not created quality, but has instead ensured that they cater for the mainstream students who best respond to the way we in Australia, inverted commas, do school. Just as in politics, competing schools lean towards the centre. It's actually got nothing to do with education, which is to lead a child out and to uh, develop their mind and to teach them to ask questions in many ways, as well as to gain skills, information, if you like, and actually to learn ways of inquiry. This has got nothing to do with all of this, has it? Well, again, Bernie Shepherd and and Chris Bonner say what you're saying in slightly different words. Mm. They actually get harder. They get get hard about it. And they say, look, students are disengaged from the school system, Mm. which pushes them through externally imposed heaps and measures their achievement in limited ways. Mm. Now, this might suit a third of the students, but another third just learn how to play the game and cruise along. But worse, we've lost the other third. We've lost the remainder. For them, school is certainly not inviting places to come and learn. We know about these young people. They are prominent on our streets and in our statistics. Mitchell Institute research shows that 26% of students fail to finish school or a vocational equivalent. They're just gone. Alas, Hattie's multiple ways to be excellent don't get much of a look in when all the ministers get together today and tomorrow. We are instead told to do mainstream schooling harder, better and longer. Not surprisingly, it resonates with the commentators. It resonates with the tabloid media. And it resonates with governments. But the crisis also calls for schooling to re-engage young people in learning for life. Harder, better, longer is no longer enough. The schools which are authentic innovators are too few and far between. Well, jobs and growth has gone homeless, hasn't it? It does indeed. Now, amid all our justified concerns about equity, perhaps our failure to meet the needs of all our young people is in fact our greatest inequity of all. If current trends continue, we can confidently expect that our structural equity and achievement deficits will continue to just get worse. Sure, we can reform schools to the hilt, hammer the maths and science, import science teachers from I don't know where, import maths teachers from I don't know where else, and the rest of it. But that's all, if that's all we do, not much is actually going to change. Separating our strivers and strugglers into different schools, as we now do, both within and across sectors, create schools that end up just coasting at one end and declining at the other. The net result is a decline. And now, we, now in Australia, are paying the price. You've been listening to The Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. I have just one small thing that I'd like to um, tell our listeners about. I started off talking about the uh, what's happening with America and separation of religion from the state. But I have here... Something from the uh, Americans United for Separation of Church and State. And they mention, or they say, that now's the time to recommit to the vision of Roger Williams. When you talk about separation of religion from the state, uh, back in America and even in Australia, we often talk about Jefferson and we talk about Inglis Clark. But 
this gentleman, Roger Williams, was the person who really came up with the original idea. He came initially from England and uh, he went to Rhode Island. It's the smallest state in the Union, but it's got a lot going for it. Rhode Island also has a fascinating history because Roger Williams was there. He was an iconic Puritan minister who was later briefly a Baptist and after that he was a free-spirited Christian outside the denominational bounds and he founded the Rhode Colony in 1636. And he was driven to do it by his devotion to absolute freedom of conscience. But Williams never really fit in with the theocratic Massachusetts Bay Colony. He was always making trouble and he frequently challenged the oppressive union of church and state there. Uh, The colony's general court decided in 1635 that all men should swear an oath of allegiance ending with, so help me God, and Williams objected. A magistrate, listen to this, this is a really interesting argument, a magistrate out ought not to tender an oath to an unregenerate man, he wrote, because that would compel the oath-taker to take the name of God in vain. (laughs) Officials in Boston, however, were not persuaded by that argument. In fact, they found Williams guilty of disseminating new and dangerous opinions and decided it was time to send him back to England by force if necessary. So he went and fled the city. But he had a good relationship with the local Native American tribes and spoke several native languages. So aided by the tribes, he founded a good piece of land south of Boston, purchased it from the natives and founded the city of Providence. Now in Providence, all people were free to worship or not as they saw fit. And this even included Quakers, a group that Williams personally didn't care for, but the policy was there. They had freedom of conscience too. And safe from the reach of the Boston theocrats, Williams wrote some books and letters outlining his views. Uh, The really good line that he wrote was, forced worship stinks in God's nostrils. (laughs) His best-known book is 1644's The Bloudy Tenet of Persecution for Cause of Conscience. And he spoke of the need for a gap in the hedge or wall of separation between the garden of the church and the wilderness of the world. And Williams, in many ways, was very close to um, Christ. And this phrase is interesting because it's similar to Thomas Jefferson's famous 1802 metaphor of the need for a wall of separation between church and state. We've lost it in Australia and they're in danger of losing it in America. But it does us well to go back to where it all started with the bloodletting of the European religious wars and it's something that we must not lose in this country so that's enough from the dogs for now Uh, thank you for letting us into your kitchen or your dining room or your bedroom wherever your radio is or indeed your car you've been listening to the dogs program the defense of government schools
D-O-G-S. If you're interested in finding out more about us, you can, of course, contact us on our website at www.adogs.info. That's adogs.info. Or you can just go to the 3CR website and listen to us all again because we're podcast on the 3CR website. Um, But until next week, as always, we have to continue this fight to defend state schools, to defend government schools. Until next week, but for Jean, myself and Dar, it's bye for now. Says he.